When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guests are Katie Kummer and Lynn DeStefano to talk about their book, Asian Revitalization, Adaptive Reuse in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Singapore. Katie Kummer is the Principal Heritage Consultant of Kummer Heritage Consulting, as well as the Founding Director of the Bachelor of Arts and Conservation degree at the University of Hong Kong, as well as received her PhD from University of Hong Kong. Linda Stefano is an adjunct professor of the Division of Architectural Conservation Program, as well as the Founder and Second Director, as well as receiving her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you both for being here and talking with me, as well as having the longest introductions of all my guests. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Very nice to be here, Brian. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, Katie, could we start with you? Sure, yeah. Uh, so I was born here in Canada in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, but moved to Hong Kong uh, with my family in the early 1990s. So this book was actually really a labor of love for me, focusing on one of the places in the world that I feel that I know the best. Um, in terms of my education, I did my undergraduate degree at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, studying classics of Greek and Roman history with a focus in archaeology. Uh, had a childhood dream of being Indiana Jones, but of course the movies are very different from reality. Uh, I did two archaeological digs in Jordan, the first as a volunteer in 2005 and a second as an area supervisor in 2008, but became disillusioned with the field. So after graduation, I enrolled in the University of Victoria's Cultural Resource Management Program, CRMP, uh, where I ended up shifting focus to heritage conservation which really laid the foundation for both the first and second stages of my career. So it was through the CRMP that I met an important mentor and friend, uh, fellow Victorian Alistair Kerr, who's in fact one of the reviewers on the back of the book. Uh, and he very kindly introduced me to my other two mentors and dear friends, Lee Ho Yin, a major contributor to the book. And of course, Linda Stefano, uh, my co-editor and fellow interviewee here today. So these three people have really helped shape me into the person and professional that I am today. Uh, and they provided me a path home to Hong Kong and an opportunity to begin my career at the university of Hong Kong, uh, first as a program coordinator and then as teaching staff and eventually in more of a leadership position. 
um, when I helped launch the undergraduate program that you just mentioned. So, uh, so for nearly a decade, I worked with them and taught as part of the architecture conservation programs, ACP. And it was during this time that I got really interested in adaptive reuse as a conservation tool and approach. Uh, but after nearly a decade of teaching, I felt I had achieved what I wanted to in the academic world, particularly after receiving two teaching awards. And so I thought it was time for a change, especially now that I had two lovely daughters to think about. So I took a leap of faith and moved my entire family across the planet to BC to be closer to my aging parents who had retired from Hong Kong to Pender Island. Uh, and happily, despite the move, I was able to continue working on this book with my former team and colleagues. And after a lot of hard work, <laughs> we got it finished and published. And here we now are. What about you, Lynn? A bit of background, please. Well, as I was listening to you, Katie, I thought, okay, uh, what, what are the key things I really want to share? Because um, I am a bit older than Katie, <laughs> so I, I don't think I can go into as much detail. Uh, we don't have the time for that. But um, I think it's important for our listeners to know that I've had a career both as a university professor as well as a chief curator at a major um, museum in Ontario. I ended up in Hong Kong, um, really thanks to my husband, because he was a professor at Western University in Ontario, had an opportunity to set up a, a graduate program in business, looked at me and said, what, what do you think? And I said, let's go for it. And so that's how I ended up in Hong Kong just before the handover. So it was at the start of 1997. And of course, once in Hong Kong, I resumed my teaching at a university. I should also say that during my three careers, um, I was engaged in outside consulting as well. Um, so I think that gives you some sense of me. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you both. And so, as I said, thank you for being here. And so we'll jump right into it. So both of you have either lived in Hong Kong or currently live in Hong Kong. And it also happens to be one of the three major centers you talk about in the book. And so kind of the first question I wanted to start with is, you know, why you, Katie, you sort of hinted at it, but, you know, what specifically, why are we focusing on Asia as well, and particularly Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Singapore? Well, so it was really interesting. Um, during the period that we were all teaching with ACP together, uh, we did a lot of field studies in Asia. And so we, we would take students to these various urban centers uh, to look at a variety of different conservation related issues and concerns. Um, and adaptive reuse kind of just started to be a focus. You know, a lot of the places that we went had a lot of very different and very dynamic examples. And so we went, we took groups of students multiple times to Shanghai. And so we were sort of starting to develop uh, kind of our, our bank of projects. Um, and it really, the, the book kind of was the culmination of a lot of those trips. Um, and sort of the increased understanding that we got from going to these places year on year and kind of seeing the changes, seeing what worked with the project, seeing what didn't and things like that. Um, and I think the reason we chose Shanghai, Singapore and Hong Kong was both because of the, the breadth of materials and understanding that we had, but they also share a lot of similar issues and concerns, you know, in terms of development pressures and whatnot. And it just seemed like a really interesting way to kind of compare three very big Asian metropolis. How would I pronounce that? Metropolises. Are you sure <laughs> that's the plural? Three big urban places. Urban. 
Yeah, actually, Katie, as you were saying that, mm. I, I'd, like, I'd like to share with our listeners um, one of the orientations that the graduate conservation program had and the undergraduate too, and that is thinking about conservation within the context uh, of development, ongoing development, uh, responsive to community needs. And so adaptive reuse really, really fit that particular orientation. We weren't looking at buildings necessarily because they were good examples of preservation. I use that term deliberately since that is the preferred term in the US. Um, but we were thinking more about the bigger context for understanding a particular kind of conservation action, namely adaptive reuse. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, I mean, so uh, as we talk about in the book, um, both our field studies pairing with an exhibition that was put together by Urban Discovery. Um, I think that's what they're called. At. Lynn, is that right? Urban discovery. It yeah. is, or, yeah. Um, and they had done a presentation looking at, at different projects in Hong Kong as well. And sort of we combined forces with them to kind of put together this book because we realized that there isn't a lot of publications done on Asia in particular with regards to adaptive reuse. And we kind of realized that there were so many projects that were now either already completed or were getting close to completion, um, at least when we started writing the book, which was five years ago, Lynn. <laughs> Well, six um, years ago, <laughs> more like six, Katie. <laughs> so yes, this took some time, um, but there was a lot that we could pull from and a lot of different um, examples that we, we thought we could bring together. And as, as I said earlier, um, before we were recording, uh, I think it was really interesting reflecting on the progress um, that has been made with regards to this approach. And, and I feel we were quite hard on these centers that in truth are doing really well. And it's amazing the number of projects that they have that have come to completion and are continuing to, to, to thrive. And I think it's really exciting to see and reflect on. It is. And in fact, um, Katie and I were having an exchange before we started recording this particular podcast. And we, we both said, we're back in Canada. I'm in Toronto. Kate, Katie is in Victoria, like two ends of our world. And... Um, and what we realize is that the places that we looked at in Asia for this book, in actual fact, in many ways, they have done far better than major centers in Canada. I, I, won't, I won't even begin to talk about comparisons with places in the US um, because of course there's a different system, different taxation system, et cetera. Um, but, uh, we come out on balance thinking that Asia is doing a fantastic job with adaptive reuse, with recognizing its heritage resources, thinking about how they can be used constructively within the context of community building, uh, having enough in the way of resources to see projects through at a, a really quite a high level. Yeah, it really is quite inspirational. And, and the amount of, of time and effort and funds that are going into these projects in Asia really is wonderful to see. And I'm afraid is not necessarily what I'm witnessing here in back in Canada. So it's it's been really interesting actually having that reflection now, uh, because of course, when we were writing it and we were much more focused in Hong Kong, uh, we're really hard on Hong Kong. And I think actually they're doing really good work, so. 
Well, interesting counterpoint. And so I, I think you do a good job, both of you, explaining the positives and negatives. And so, uh, Lynn, you had actually just made a point about how maybe Canada and the United States have a different process uh, policy. In your introduction, you specifically mentioned the, the, the year of 1997, and you call it the handover. And obviously, there's a very, that's an important year. You know, things were done quite a bit different before and after. And so I'd love if you could kind of elaborate that for our listeners, what you mean by this 1997 handover. Well, 97, um, I, I would think that many of our, many of our listeners realized that that was the, the time um, that Hong Kong was officially handed back to mainland China with the proviso that there be um, two systems, one country, China, including Hong Kong, but two systems, two legal systems. So what were the changes immediately noticeable? This is a very good question. Uh, one that certainly Katie and I are frequently asked. Um, I was there starting uh, with actually with the handover. It's just like fixed in my mind, the night of celebration. Um, so was there immediate change? One of the first things that happened was the post boxes changed from being red color to being green color. So there, there are all these subtle, quiet changes taking place, but there were more major changes that had predated the handover. Um, so you find that there really is a shift towards emphasizing the hiring of Hong Kong people as opposed to expats coming in although a fair number of expats do continue in their positions. But there really is a deliberate attempt uh, to involve people of Hong Kong. And, and of course, the people of Hong Kong refer to themselves as Hong Kongers, not Chinese. Hmm. Um, so there was a real, real attempt to allow them to rise through the ranks with more recognition a little more quickly. I would also say that a, a big shift that started to take place, as is often the case in sort of post-colonial environments, is a desire to kind of identify, you know, define and identify who they are um, and, and what it means to be a Hong Konger, as Lynn said, and also what places matter. So actually, you do see in the post-1997 Hong Kong this sort of a greater consideration of the sites of significance. And we, we had, you know, we talk about it in the Hong Kong chapter um, with the loss of the Star Ferry Pier. And that really was the catalyst that, that catapulted conservation forward in Hong Kong. And that resulted in the establishment of the Development Bureau. So uh, an actual bureau that was tasked with conservation concerns, among other things. Um, and, uh, and that's what resulted as well in the revitalization scheme that we talk a lot about in the book, which was, you know, the government pinpointing government owned buildings that could be used for adaptive reuse. Um, so a lot, I mean, 1997 was a really important point for a lot of reasons. And then I would say it was sort of within that first 10 year period that, um, allowed sort of the shifts and the growing pains to take place so that there was sort of a better position for the conservation of the city going forward. We lost a lot of buildings as well. You know, it was not all <laughs> success stories, um, but I think a lot of those growing pains allowed us to get to where we are today. Well, and, and Katie, I sit here and I'm thinking, you're absolutely right. There was 10 years of growth 
And it was done very strategically by government, uh, recognizing the importance of local heritage for local Chinese. Uh, it was most appropriate and very well done. However, one could say that, that it contributed to the rising sense of people feeling that they were Hong Kongers mm -hmm. and not mainland Chinese. And of course, those that follow politics in Hong Kong closely know that starting about a little over two years ago, well, actually it's more than that, uh, you do have the pro-democracy movement. Um, and, and I do believe that conservation fed into that um, because we help people. And I mean, we really literally help people understand the importance of understanding one's local heritage and what it meant to be a Hong Kong person. And we did that through helping people understand the heritage resources, buildings among and artifacts and intangible heritage. Mm -hmm. it's, it's great. And you, it's interesting that you both mentioned this 10 year growing pain period, because another point I think the book does a really good job is clearly defining that between 1997 and 2007 is kind of another change in policy. Uh, you know, I know maybe, I, maybe it's gonna sound like I'm being a little hard after reading the book on Hong Kong, but there's a situation between 97 and 2007 Sounds pretty familiar to quite a few municipalities that I won't use by name. You know, you, you mentioned that there's there's 15 departments across five bureaus that was responsible for conservation, but they never they very rarely employed building of uh, professionals, a lot of museum curators, etc. And there was a lot of focus on government buildings being converted. And so you, I think you do a good job painting it as successful. But I guess to kind of play devil's advocate, it sounded like there was also quite a bit of costly and not as successful parts of this tenure period as well. Yeah, it was a period of growth, no doubt about it. <laughs> and so <laughs> to piggyback on your point, you mentioned kind of a growing involvement of the public. And so I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through then, you know, very clearly from 2007 on, things were done differently and you kind of already hinted at what affects that cause. I was wondering if you could elaborate that for our listeners a little more. If, Sorry, Lynn, go ahead. No, no. Um, Katie, you go ahead. Um, and I'll think um, about uh, what I can add to it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, so as I said, the, the Star Ferry Pier and the Queen's Pier protests were a really important point um, in changing how the government dealt with the public. Is I think that there was a greater emphasis put on public consultation, you know, getting their input on the places that mattered, because I don't think they expected the public to care so much about these very ordinary peers. Um, I, I guess, yeah, to give context, the, these were the peers that were for the Star Ferry to go across um, Victoria Harbor, very, very cheap ferries, very utilitarian. Um, and then the one next door is Queen's Pier. It was a ceremonial one. I don't think the government expected people to feel as connected to the place as they did. And so I think going forward, they were, they tried to be more considerate of getting a, a wide variety of, of perspectives and opinions on um, places that could matter, if that makes sense. And I think they, they tried to be strategic. It's not to say that they were always successful, right? I mean, we definitely still had, you know, um, 
oh, what's the word? Not catalyst, but sort of these, these, these places that, that got people upset with what was being proposed. But I think that they were able to, to at least be a little bit more careful and more thoughtful about it. Were you gonna say something then? Yes, I was thinking of the catalyst, kind of trigger points for mm -hmm. response. Um, and, and of course, there's still trigger points. Right now uh, in Hong Kong, one of the trigger points is the recent discovery uh, with construction of under, an underground, I think it's a series of aqueducts. And suddenly this, everyone is like, wow, these are fantastic. It's like a whole underground world. It's a heritage world. Um, so it, it's one of these triggers, recent triggers um, that have really galvanized people's interest in heritage and the importance of keeping um, buildings and structures of importance. Interesting. And so one thing that came to my mind, I, I know people probably get tired of talking about it, but it's been our life for the last year and a half. You know, you had mentioned that, especially in the book, you talk about, you know, with the involvement of non-government and uh, organizations, NGOs, there's kind of this collaboration between the public and private sector. And so with the government's help, uh, private entities are allowed, are able to kind of pursue growth. And I think you make a case that's very successful. So I guess the question is, that I'm sure everyone's tired of talking about, you know, in the last year and a half, has COVID, especially in Asia, affected the conservation effort, the government's involvement? I guess without oversimplifying, you know, has their attention and funds been diverted from this effort? I'm sure, absolutely. Right. How could they not be? <laughs> you know, <laughs> as, and, you know, and you, it's kind of mentioned towards the end of the book, you know, the reality is adaptive reuse is the best path forward. I have my own bias there as an architect. But it's also not, it's not easy and cheap. I think I actually take that directly from you, Katie, that it's not easy, it's not cheap. You have to focus on the dividends. Yeah, no, and I think it is, it's a real challenge. I, I, I heard a quote the other day that I really liked um, that was from uh, Carl Elefante, is that how you pronounce it? He was the former president of the American Institute of Architects who said the greenest building is one that already exists. And yes. I think that's, I think it's a really good quote and I think it's so true. But of course there is the truth of it that that these old buildings, they require a different level of work and upkeep. And I think it, you know, particularly, again, coming now from the North American perspective, it is a really expensive endeavor. And I think it's very hard to justify the public funds. So one thing that I think is really interesting with the three case study cities is the amount of government funding that goes into these projects in addition mm -hmm. to private. And I just think it would be very hard to justify some of that expense here in the North American context when there are so many other issues at play. I think it's a lot, it's a much harder sell. Um, Hong Kong is very wealthy. Hong Kong has a lot of money um, yeah. and they're able, I think there is a greater willingness of the public for those funds to be used in this way that I don't think you would see here. And because here, so- here in Victoria, for example, there's all sorts of issues with um, uh, seismic upgrading. And this is something that we didn't really talk about. I mean, this never came up with these projects in Asia is those requirements. And it's becoming more and more cost prohibitive mm -hmm. um, for these types of projects here, because in order to make things uh, secure and safe to the modern standard, you have to do so much work on these old buildings. And I don't know how to make how you reconcile those two aspects here. I think it's really interesting. Um, and same with hazmat. Uh, there's a huge issue with hazmat materials 
um, or hazardous materials uh, and uh, how to address those in these old buildings. And again, Lynn, I find it interesting that this never came up with the people that we interviewed there. You know, I don't remember there being any discussion about asbestos concerns and, and whatnot <laughs> with, with these projects. And I, I just, I never really thought about it at the time until now that I'm here and dealing with these aspects. Yeah. Well, it is interesting, Katie, you know, the work I did for um, ECOMOS in regard to world heritage, mm -hmm. uh, I had to consider sites from the point of view of risk preparedness. Um, but I think about our three sites in terms of risk. Um, they're not they're not near an, an active fault. Um, so earthquake is not as much of a peril as it is, for example, where you are mm -hmm. in Victoria. So there were certain things that were not not they're not part of the landscape of those three places, although. Um, Probably with Singapore, yes, you know, because it's an island, you have some issues with rising waters, that kind of thing. But you're quite right. Um, this, these, these were not issues that had to be talked about. And as I reflect upon it, I am not sure that the bylaws for uh, construction or renovation required that one look at these. You know, I think about Hong yeah. Kong. I don't think there was at the time a requirement. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, I, I reflecting on it now, I find that really interesting <laughs> that yeah. there is sort of a more uh, straightforwardness or a simplicity to their requirements. And I think that's part of what what makes these projects successful is that they perhaps there is a little bit less red tape that they had to deal with. Yeah, except Katie, the large, large project in Hong Kong. Um, the all, old law courts, police station, et cetera, some 17 uh, heritage buildings. Um, they're the conservation architects. When they did uh, realize there was a hurdle, i.e. an existing reg that said that the banisters had to be of a certain height, you know, for the protection of people not falling over, um, they were able to come up with solutions, mm -hmm. alternative solutions and government found it acceptable. So there was a certain flexibility. Now, and I remember that as well in, in Shanghai too, you know, Andre de Stefanis, he was talking about that. But I think that there, at least from my memory and my sense of it, I think there's a greater flexibility in these Asian centers than I certainly have witnessed in my work here in BC now. I feel like, you know, there's, there is a rigidity to these requirements and, and I feel you need to have more compromise and balance with these types of buildings. Sorry, you're going to say right. it's it's absolutely true. Um, I'm sitting now looking at several projects um, undergoing. Um, well, actually, they're new projects, new builds. But um, the the it is incredible the number of requirements that are needed uh, to get approvals. Um, whether you're talking about you know a change in the zoning or site plan approval or taking it to committee of adjustment. I'm sure, Brian, these are all familiar terms to you. Um, Absolutely. And there is so much control. There's mm -hmm. so many hurdles. And, and the other thing that I'm discovering, and I'd be interested if Brian can comment on this, that um, the uh, municipal personnel who actually are the gatekeepers on this there is some interesting room for flexibility and play um, so that you end up not necessarily um, with 
better projects, but but with worse projects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brian, I was wondering what the the status is in New York. Uh, you know, is are there a lot of adaptive reuse projects in the state, or you know, what's been your experience with that? So my experience. So in the commercial realm, yes, almost everything is adaptive reuse. Every other realm, however, it's quite a bit less. I thought it was one of the, although you and we'll actually circle back to that. So yeah, the commercial world, yes, adaptive reuse is kind of the name of the game. Whereas residential, institutional, even especially government buildings, it's actually not as prevalent as you would think. Mm. And when you say commercial, is it, um, yeah, can you give me an example? Is, is uh, absolutely. It Any kind of retail, particularly with uh, malls, um, Every mall space is recycled probably 10 times more than any other space in the world. Hmm. So, like I said, it seems to be retail and commercial spaces are always looking for a building to convert. Whereas residential, no private residential client has ever wanted an old building. They always want new build. And it seems like government buildings also always just want to start from scratch. That could be a testament to how much red tape we go through here in building regulations, et cetera. So I think that probably plays into it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find it very interesting. Um, the result that I've seen here is that there is so much red tape, there is so much difficulty and challenge to it, that what happens so much here is facadism. Uh, I did not think facadism was alive and as, as alive and well as it is here. Um, because again, those seismic upgrading requirements, things like that, the interior structure, so often they end up going, oh yeah, yeah, no, it's just too much to, to save. Okay, let's just save the front. You can keep that look and then build whatever you want. Um, and I've been really shocked at how much that happens here. Um, but I think it's because of the, the difficulty and the, the challenge uh, of getting approvals and getting everything in order in order to be reusing these old buildings. Yeah, but Katie, there's something else. And this, this is happening, I think probably more in Toronto. Um, because we're not an earthquake um, prone area. Um, it's the high price of land, uh, the need for housing. So there is a, a real pattern now of taking historic buildings, whether they're domestic or commercial, keeping the facades and then building high behind. Mm -hmm. so we're up to 30 stories or 40 stories in height. Um, and just keeping the facade. And, and, and Katie and I long maintain <clears throat> facadism is not conservation. It, it, it's not. It is just a pretty face. Um, and it's a face that you've been given. You didn't ask for it, um, but there it is. So you, <laughs> you know, somehow put it on the building um, and you work around it. Well, um, and, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And I happen to live in a condo um, in Toronto uh, near downtown. And the condo developer had to put the facade of a historic house that was on the property on part of the wings. And so you walk into our courtyard, which is quite nice. And then you have a white brick building that's a very modest two stories <laughs> against 32 stories that's all glass. You know, um, that's not, it really is not conservation. And the thing that I find so funny is, so going back to Hong Kong in the late 1990s, is this was a very common trend then. So, you know, we're, we're very hard on Hong Kong, but I'm very proud of the fact that basically they left their facadism days behind in the 1990s. <laughs> 
and this was something that we taught in in ACP, um, just sort of how best to avoid that, and you know, better to reuse the whole building and things like that. And we talk a lot about that, and you know, we talked a lot about it in our classes. And so that's why for me coming here, it's been such a shock to see how prevalent this approach is still here. Do you find that the case in New York, Brian? Uh, specifically about facadism. Yeah. Yes, actually, and so. Lynn had also asked a question about how is there any play or wiggle room here in the United States? I guess at the risk of having all my building permits delayed by every <laughs> official who listens to this. The sad reality is it does seem like, as cliche as it sounds, the money of the project matters. Uh, if you're a small town, small client or a small architect as myself, there is no, the law is the law. If I was a developer who threw money around, there's a lot more flexibility afforded to me. Yes, and I'm I, I'm sure that's not just here in the states, but I think maybe in the states it's a little worse than anywhere else. Oh, so, um, oh, Brian, I'm not sure about that. that right? okay. <laughs> and so, in so I, to answer your question, I think when it comes to conservation, it kind of no seems and to depend on how much money you can prove is coming to the community. Interesting. Yeah, I you know this leads me to to I think an important discussion. Um, because we've talked about facadism and, and the reasons why we have it and the fact it's not good conservation. Mm -hmm. And so that leads one to think, okay, what, why do we try to recycle buildings, uh, use them for um, a new purpose? And um, an architect in Malaysia who is very thoughtful on this subject um, feels very strongly that you have, if you have a building that's built for a particular purpose, that purpose uh, is no longer relevant to the community, then one should try to find a new use that at least has a sense of association with that original use. So there's some kind of continuation, some kind of continuity. Mm -hmm. um, you have other practitioners um, equally good in their own right who say, oh no, you know, it's not about that. It's about you have a building. Um, the the original use is no longer um, relevant. It's no longer sustainable. Uh, the important thing is just to find a use to put into a, a building. It's a marriage. You know, there doesn't have to be kind of continuity uh, in terms of use. So, and where does that leave us today? Um, when I think about some of the best projects. Are they closest to the original use or are they completely new uses? And, and you know, what, how do we begin to measure the success of an adaptive reuse project? Great question. It was quite funny. So I actually woke up thinking about adaptive reuse. <laughs> And just and thinking, reflecting on my my quote unquote favorite projects. <laughs> so obviously this is super subjective, but I do find it interesting sort of my my gut instinct in thinking about that question. I think it is the closest one. So, you know, Little Hong Kong, an old um, explosives magazine. So it used to store explosives. It now stores wine. And I really like that. I like and the connection and continuity. Yeah. And also, Katie, wine is explosive. You there know. you go. There you go. Or, you know, the, the blue mansion in Penang, right? It was a it was a family mansion and now it's used as an as a BNB. I like that there is this connection between the two. Um, and, and perhaps it, I think it just comes down to personal preference. But I do think that those that are 
most viable and that really, you know, thrive um, are those ones that have the happy marriage. You know, I think about poor 1933, um, which is this beautiful slaughterhouse in Shanghai that they turned into a mall. And this is a site that we went to year on and year on, and it was always empty. That, you know, it, it wasn't a happy marriage. <laughs> it didn't work. Um, and I think it's a shame because I, with these buildings, if they don't get used, they fall into disrepair and, you know, they, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have a vibrancy to them and they won't have the longevity. I don't know what the right answer is, what you can do with a slaughterhouse. But, you know, when you have such a dynamic building, um, I think you need to be creative with what you want to use it for. And then, Absolutely. of course, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yes, that gets us into a, a, a very important area, and that is um, financial sustainability. So uh, frequently, um, commercial uh, enterprises are able to take an old building, you know, the use is completely changed, but they've got, they've got a good new use, a terrific business plan, um, and everyone is happy. Of, of course, maybe not everyone is happy because maybe it, the community has not identified with the new use. The community doesn't feel the new use meets, you know, their needs or what they anticipated their needs to be. Um, so having understanding um, what you want uh, as an operator and, and I think ideally being able to involve the community to reflect the community's interests, um, to somehow make the community a better place to live, to work, to play. I think that's really important. And I, as I think about it, it's not really about whether the use is commercial or whether it's a nonprofit use, but in what way does the community benefit? Is there a community benefit? Does, is the community happy with that adaptive reuse? Um, does it make sense to them? Do they support it in some way? Is there a project that you're thinking of in particular when you say that? Is there a good example that you can think of? Well, here, here in Toronto, there's a project by Evergreen. Uh, yes, very much into sustainability, <laughs> as you would expect by the name. Um, but it's, it's uh, the adaptive reuse of an old brick manufacturing facility. Um, probably one of the biggest ones in the whole Toronto area. Um, and of course, bricks, you know, are no longer manufactured um, the way they were in the 19th century. So the site became dormant um, within the 20th century. But it's been turned into the most wonderful site that makes use of the geography. So where the clay had been taken out of it, out of the ground, that is now a pond that encourages wildlife bird life, walks around it. The buildings themselves um, now supply a number of offices for professional groups, also nonprofit groups. They offer um, restaurants that serve food that is responsibly uh, sourced, responsibly prepared. Um, They have shops for um, produce where you can buy fresh produce to use or plants, that kind of thing. So it's become a real community um, magnet, if you will. Mm. It's a place where people will go with their families, with the children, um, to do the walks, just to be there, to eat, you know, to buy things, etc. So I think it's a very good example. So it's evergreen brickworks. 
Okay. And you can Google it online and have a good understanding of what it offers. I will. We've lost Brian, but we can keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, fortunately, I'm the one recording, so it doesn't matter. All right. Um, so, so Katie, um, the the two the two real things I wanted to talk about. One was, you know, who really benefits from this, mm -hmm. and so I certainly have come down uh, thinking about the benefit to communities, uh, which I do think is incredibly important. And um, what are your thoughts? Well, so I, I think about the projects that, that we look at, and I think that there definitely are ones that worked better for the community side of things and those that perhaps were lacking. And for me, I think of SCAD in Sham Shui Po, and I think that did not have the community benefit, um, despite what the... Um, the, the promotional materials say. Um, I, and I think you can see the challenges there. Um, and, and of course, it's now no longer there. And I, I hope whatever ends up going into that building that they can have a better connection and benefit for the community um, than, than that one did. And I, I think you're right. I mean, I think the projects don't work unless there is community benefit, community buy-in, you know, that it needs to be a two-way street. Um, and I think and I hope that projects, you know, continue to, to have that focus um, as, as more get proposed, for sure. Were there any that you thought of, um, you know, if you had to be <laughs> play favorites, is there one for you that jumps to mind? Uh-huh. I, I think my favorites really, although I like the, the case studies in Hong Kong, but I do have a bias towards Singapore mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think Singapore has really, once they decide what to do, there's no going back and it's full on. Mm -hmm. and, and, and because Singapore has a very, very engaged URA, I mean, really development is considered holistically and adaptive reuse has now become part of that. So I think, I think uh, because of the government, Singapore has perhaps been more successful in it, the range of its projects now. I think at the beginning, um, there were some issues, but I think now with increased understanding of the importance of adaptive reuse and an understanding of community input, I think Singapore has really edged ahead of Hong Kong. Mm, interesting. You know. I rather, I do rather like um, the new, um, the new gallery, uh, mm. which, which, you know, takes two very important historic institutional buildings and weaves them together mm -hmm. very effectively. And I think um, what I like about that is you can still read both historic buildings. They do have this historic relationship. Um, and they really have been, they have been programmed to appeal to the broader Singapore community. And as you know, Singapore has long had a policy. We do things for our own people and if visitors come, that's great. We welcome them, but our primary focus is our people. And the programming now in the building is fantastic. The last time I was there, which is now, I think about a little over two years ago, it was hopping with young people. Mm -hmm. It was fantastic. 
um, you just felt that it really was a community gathering place. So I, I think it's a very successful project. Nice. Uh, Brian, are you there? Yes. Oh, back. Hi, Brian. Uh, hi. Right. Hopefully, hopefully you finish, continue the conversation without me. We did. We just, we just continued on. <laughs> perfect. No, perfect. So I timestamped it. I'm happy you're hosting it. I don't know why I was kicked off like that. I guess we don't have a stable connection here. Yeah, super weird. Um, I was going to ask you, um, having read the book, was there a project for you that kind of stood out that you felt, you know, this was a really good example and, and something that, that clicked for you? Or Yes, I do have to open to the page. I'm not great with dates, names, and like specific... No worries. Obviously, we're, we're biased in the sense that we know all the projects like the back of our hand. Yes, so. absolutely. You possibly may have already talked about if you had. I mean, I'm just gonna honestly, I gotta pull to the page with the picture. No, no problem. One second here. Da, da, da. Like I said, obviously, we will edit out this part. Page <laughs> 45. It was one in the Hong Kong chapter. That is, that's probably why I'm focusing on that chapter. I, I bet it's Crown Wine Cellar. Let's see. It was the. Uh, you know, honestly, no, it wasn't. Although I do like that one. To me, it was the, oh, yeah, there it is. The old dairy farm depot. Mm. Why did that one stand out for you? Uh, so not only do I like that building, honestly, and I've, I've actually seen it before, but I guess the most shallow metric for me is that, you know, it's still being used in its new use like three decades later. And again, I know that seems a little shallow, but there's a lot of successful examples here in the States as well that kind of don't last very long. So for that mm -hmm. to continue being it, to me, that was kind of the one that stand out, stood out to me. Nice. Well, it's in, sorry. Longevity. I'm just making yes. a note of that. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing we did talk about, Brian, was um, a community benefit. And I do right. think longevity is something to think about as well. So it's, it's a little heartbreaking. So, of course, we finished writing this um, in December of 2019. Uh, before the world fell apart yeah. and um, unfortunately a bunch of the projects actually no longer exist uh, sure. and of course yeah. we didn't have an opportunity to have that sort of put in as an mm -hmm. addendum um, but uh, so SCAD is one it it literally just closed up shop um, yeah. last May so there's a project that's now gone Red Town is now gone there's, there's a handful of them um, and I think it's a real shame just thinking about the amount of time and energy and money and you know blood sweat and tears that went into those mm -hmm. projects and then to have them basically just closed up, I think it's really unfortunate. And so, yeah, I, I think I think the the longevity of a project and be, you know the sustainability of a project, you know that word in so many different ways, um, is such an important part of it as well. Yes, but but we can do a post mortem, and Katie and I did a little bit of one while you were um, not with us, and uh, with the with Savannah. Um, uh, we're convinced that one of the things that went wrong was there was not community involvement. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of hype about it, but there was not real community involvement. Yeah. So just to give a bit of background. So it was the former uh, North Kowloon Magistracy building that was converted into the Savannah College of Art and Design Hong Kong campus. Um, and it was located in Cham Shui Po in quite a, a poor neighborhood of Hong Kong. Um, and unfortunately, there was a little bit of a disconnect between the college and the community, and there wasn't as much community benefit. Um, the community didn't really get to use the building. You know, it, it, 
there was a disconnect. And I think that did impact some of its viability and, and it's some of its longevity for sure. Um, and I was saying, I'm quite interested to see what ends up going in there now, because of mm -hmm. course it, it is a government owned. So I assume it would go back into the pool for the revitalization scheme so right. that other, other people could bid on it to make suggestions for what it could be used for. Um, and I think it would be very interesting to see sort of, you know, a bit of watch this space to see what ends up happening with it. Yes. And then one of the projects, Redtown in uh, Shanghai, um, that its demise actually was not surprising because that was government owned. And as soon as the government began to realize the value of the property, they could find, you know, uses for it that were more remunerative. So, um, you know, money enters into it. And I think Savannah, Savannah, I think, you know, lack of funding from the states probably was part of it, Katie. I think it was also the unrest. The unrest, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it, it was with various protests and whatnot. So in addition to the pandemic. Anyway, so yes, this is it's all good to reflect on. Um, one of my questions was, I wondered if our listeners would be interested in what's next. Uh, yes, actually, you read my mind. So, was, <laughs> you know, obviously, we've only scratched the surface of all the case studies, and we've kind of focused on one of the three centers you talk about. So I would encourage everyone to read it. And so both of you have hinted at it already. But so one thing I always like to hear is, you know, what have you, what, since the books come out, obviously things have changed drastically since the book came out, but what have you been working on? You know, what's, what's in the future? What's keeping you both occupied? Katie, you can go, you can go first. Okay, sure. Um, well, so it's, it's sort of funny. I mean, this, this book really was, um, uh, a bit of a love letter, a bit of a final hurrah for me with regards to, to ACP and the work that we were doing there. So since then, and since leaving Hong Kong, I, um, I am now a full-time heritage consultant working on lots of different projects. So I would say two things that I'm working on right now is one is reviewing um, two heritage conservation areas in an interior city here in BC. Um, and I might, you know, not, there's been nothing published on uh, conservation areas in BC. It's all predominantly Ontario. <laughs> Looking at you, Lynn. <laughs> Lots of research and analysis on that. So that's something that I'm kind of thinking about wanting to maybe um, delve a little bit deeper into. Um, and I also just got awarded a project looking at, very appropriately, um, an old courthouse here in Victoria. And the, the government is trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, and so I'll get to be researching and writing and sort of making suggestions of, of potential adaptive reuse options for them. So, and I think honestly, I think Asian revitalization will be a lot of inspiration for me for that. So. Um, but yeah, so perhaps there is a, a Canadian revitalization book <laughs> in the future. We shall see. We shall see. What about you, Lynn? Well, actually, Katie, um, we've not talked about that, but um, some of the projects here in Toronto, um, I think, are, are, are successful. So, you know, yeah, maybe let's talk. <laughs> talk about that. Um, but meanwhile, Brian, um, I'm still involved in Hong Kong, but at a much reduced uh, level. Um, but my reduced level does include, it appears, a sequel to Asian revitalization. All right. And this time looking at um, three different places, um, a place in India, Mumbai, uh, a place in Malaysia, Georgetown, um, and, and um, Macau, which like 
Hong Kong is, is really part of mainland China now. And so um, the book proposal is done. It's been submitted to the press and they have offered an advance contract. Oh. So, so that's on the plate. And then I, I have had a longstanding interest in uh, vernacular architecture, um, typography, particularly house forms. And so I'm working on um, a house form that is known in Ontario as the Ontario Cottage. But frankly, you would find the Ontario Cottage in Australia and you would find it in New Zealand. You'd find it throughout uh, the empire. Um, so I'm, I did a manuscript years ago. It was not very good. And so I'm completely rewriting, revising it. Now, isn't it nice to share with your readers that, that someone that you're interviewing admits to not doing a good job? <laughs> it's better than pretending you know everything when we all know nobody does. So. No one does. No one does. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then I become quite involved in local heritage matters in Toronto um, and uh, learning a lot about um, the system that when you have a disagreement between a developer and the community, it frequently oh. will end up in front of a tribunal and one or two of oh. the, of the uh, judges, if you will, although they're not technically judges, will decide the outcome with no recourse. Yeah. So just been involved with um, a very important matter that concerns a precinct around provincial buildings. And uh, anyway, well. interesting work. Uh, very interesting. Perhaps we'll all be talking again someday with one of Brian, these other projects. Can I ask one quick question before we sign off? Absolutely. How did you hear about this book? So I, how did I, how did I specifically hear about it? Yeah. Uh, so I'm always looking for guests and there's not as many architectural publications as I would like. And so I honestly, I go to these publishers constantly and look through them and I happen to uh, be doing something with some clients that, how do, I, how do I put this? I So a couple of these projects, some clients of mine looked up, I'm trying not to be vague. They don't want that released yet. <laughs> so some of these buildings I have actually looked at already. And so whether it was coincidence or not, I came across this while perusing the different publishers. And that's, yeah, that's honestly how we came across it. Well, was it useful? Absolutely. I am always interested in case study. And that's why, unfortunately, we kind of, we talked about the concepts, we didn't get to focus on the actual case studies as much, but I think maybe for our listeners who don't know, there's very detailed case study information as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I guess, I think the case, all of it was successful, but the case studies provided quite a bit of information I could show in a very persuasive manner, we'll say. Oh, I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously the essays are their own element. And I think the case uh -huh. studies as well really sort of stand proud. Um, and we and that was really the intention is we wanted to be able to showcase okay. a wide variety of different types of projects, different types of buildings mm -hmm. um, to, give, to give inspiration, because I think adaptive reuse is an approach that is absolutely needed the world over. We can't yes. keep demolishing buildings and building anew. You need to use what is there. <laughs> Um, and so if being able to kind of show people what the possibilities are, I'm, you know, it's, it's a wonderful, I'm so pleased to hear that, Brian, you've made my day. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. Yeah, yes. the same. And I think, Brian, in the introduction, what we tried to do 
was to help people understand what we mean by adaptive reuse because yes. because the term is used not always fully understood and right. then there you know similar terms that are used to explain the process so it was really to give some kind of a grounding uh, for this particular approach you know to recycling buildings or conserving buildings that are of heritage value but but on that topic actually every building has the potential to be a heritage building so this is not just about heritage buildings absolutely yeah. no, I so I want to thank you both very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having us and thank you for being yeah, interested. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed it very much. Me too. Yes, same here to, uh, to all of our listeners. The book is Asian Revitalization, Adaptive Reuse in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Singapore. As I said, we glossed over quite a bit, so I would recommend picking it up so you can catch the rest. <laughs> and to everyone listening, thank you and have a great day.